This week on a lively experiment, the Rhode Island Board of Elections votes to take another look at the filing signatures for one candidate in the CD1 race. And is Tidewater Landing Soccer Stadium getting back on track? A lively experiment is generously underwritten by. Hi, I'm John Hazen White Jr. For over 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program in Rhode Island PBS. Joining us on the panel, Billy Hunt, chairman of the Libertarian Party of Rhode Island, URI political science professor Emily Lynch, and Joe Powers, chairman of the Rhode Island Republican Party. Hello and welcome to Lively. I'm Jim Hummel. We appreciate you spending part of your weekend with us. On second thought, the Rhode Island Board of Elections does want to take a look at every signature submitted by the Samita Matos campaign, even if it may not have any practical effect as we're less than a month out from primary day. The board's 5-2 vote on Tuesday was prompted by one of its newer members who said it was a nod to public feedback that members could have been more proactive when fraudulent signatures were discovered several weeks ago. Emily, let me begin with you on this. It was nice to know that the newest board member, Randall Jack Voney, was responsive to this. What are your thoughts about doing this now, going back and looking at it? Right. I think that, I mean, you uh, make a key point here of being responsive. And that's what we'd like to see. And I think the Board of, of Elections are showing that they are being responsive to Rhode Islanders, um, especially when um, we have interest groups like Common Cause, John Marion, pointing out that their initial discussions were private. So they're bringing this to um, the, the, you know, the discussion to the public. And I think that's, that's important. Um, and as we are, as um, you know, the media has covered that we've seen that this was unprecedented, the number of fraudulent signatures. Um, so I, I think that that's if, if we want to ensure election integrity, then that this um, is an important step for the Board of Elections. So much of it is public perception, right, Joe? Oh, 100 percent. First off, you know, you have to commend Randall Jacoloni for, for actually bringing in a revisit. Cranston guy. Cranston guy uh, happened to be a Republican. But my point is. <laughs> He, uh, you know, revisiting this uh, to go through and to, like we said, making the system work for itself. It just also seems, though, that there's a slight mechanism that's still missing on all of this. You know, you have some people saying, well, they caught the names, so obviously the election integrity is, in, is intact. And you got other people saying, well, what do we do moving forward? Because even though they're going to revisit it, um, her name is still going to be on the ballot, whether her numbers drop below or not. So there just seems to be like that one extra step that we need to bring things into, as it was quoted, into the 21st century. And everything else that we do, we can get instant gratification on we can get instant results and in this situation it just seems like Rhode Island is missing something uh, as far as the election integrity to keep it fully so to, you know to keep the, the public's you know perception of what it is that they're voting on um, all intact and if we don't do that then you know it's just gonna fall apart the, the Libertarian Party had its own signature issue last fall uh, last summer yeah. with governor and I know you've been thinking a lot about this issue well the we had the inverse issue where we had uh, too many of our signatures rejected and uh, again our rejection rate wasn't as high as Sabina's uh, the problem was is that the Board of Elections in that case as well as this case uh, really didn't feel like they were had a lot of urgency to act on the issue uh, the other congressional candidate uh, had I think Carlson had uh, one of his representatives there to object uh, they claimed that he didn't have standing a year ago they tried to claim 
I didn't have standing because we're not a recognized party and I'm the chairman of a non-recognized party. So, um, you know, I, this should have been done three weeks ago, four weeks ago uh, when this initially happened. Uh, a very procedural process. The uh, Board of Elections could have called all of the petitioners of the petitions and questions, the notaries who notarize those forms, asked them to appear before the board, testify and affirm that the, uh, the oath that they signed on the back of the form was indeed true and to make sure that those signatures were valid and that they witnessed those signatures collected. If they were unable to affirm that, uh, they should just reject the entire page entirely. I think uh, the board member Simone brought up that suggestion. That motion was uh, not even uh, brought to a vote, I believe, at the, uh, the hearing yesterday. Um, you know, this shows, uh, because it's a special election and the candidates are not benefiting from the traditional endorsement process where the town committees are able to collect signatures on behalf of these statewide candidates, um, that it shows it what a barrier it is for third party, unendorsed, or independent candidates to actually get on the ballot. And all of these perceived frontrunner candidates, like Sabina Matos, uh, has never had to collect signatures by herself in a statewide election. Uh, she's always benefited from the endorsement process. So now that she's actually had to go out there and do this, it's showing what a, a convoluted and difficult process it is. So there really needs to be some changes uh, in, in how this whole process is actually taking place to make a ballot access more accessible to more candidates that want to get on the ballot. What about the process, Emily? Some people have talked, the Secretary of State's talked about moving the primary. Now, whether you do that to the spring or a month earlier, it seems like we needed a little more room to breathe in this process because everybody was under the gun. Right. 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 So, so perhaps there and, and we've talked about this before on this show mm -hmm. of maybe extending that time um, before the primary. But I think, um, Billy, you make a really good point about ballot access and reconsidering um, laws related to ballot access. Um, and if we look at signature verification process across the states, uh, they've they vary. There is, I believe, one state, I think Alaska, um, does not require signatures. Um, I'm not arguing that that's the way to go, but um, but I think, um, as, as you mentioned, that going modernizing the system would be important. Um, there's a team of URI professors in the engineering department that are looking at elections processes and looking at, um, they've done some research on more of the ma mail-in ballots, but signature verifications. Um, and I think that's something that we need to be um, researching and paying attention to as we move forward. That's what that engineering bond went to a couple of years ago, right? You got the new building, you got the engineers down in the basement trying to reconfigure elections. No, that's good. What do you think, Bill? So I, I, I think you're right. It's, it's the opening up the amount of time that we have. I mean, let's be honest, the, the, the people who are verifying the signatures, they've got a big undertaking. They've got a huge task to take. I, I ran for office last year, and I was always told, as soon as you get any amount of names on the card, get it passed in, give them time, don't swamp them, make sure you give them time to do all this. And my question is, why are we doing this? What's the rush? Mm -hmm. why, why are we pushing so quickly to get this all done? And, and somebody says, well, it doesn't matter. Like somebody like Sabina Matos is going to end up on the ballot anyway. And my first question was, well, why? Well, because they already printed the cards. I'm like, <laughs> I'll say it again. But why? I don't understand why it's such a rush. Why We should have a more modernized system, something that allows us to go through and to actually verify these things to make sure it's done correctly. I mean, don't even take into effect, you know, collections and uh, collections of signatures and and how you got them somebody in such a high office they should have people lined up ready, ready, ready to sign this thing. I don't understand going out and having to get all of them. So try, try to avoid the entire, entire you know, mess up in the beginning. 
Billy, we were talking, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, one of the things they could do is go ahead and have the signature petitions available at the local board of canvassers where somebody who's a voter in the district can go to the board of canvassers, not just see one candidate, but all the candidates that are there qualified to sign for. They could present an ID just like they do for emergency voting or anything like that and be able to sign for one or all of the ballot petitions to help someone get on the ballot. And the notary's right there. They're right there. And you're cutting out the middleman. And I can tell from the logistics of running around the state trying to collect... Uh, get volunteers, collect signatures, organize them by town, get them notarized, drive around. I mean, I could show you a, a, a video of me driving around the state like a <laughs> madman the last two days of the collection period trying to deliver these petitions. Um, another option would be go online and just like people affiliate and disaffiliate online through the Secretary of State's website, there's a process around it. Uh, people get follow-up mail saying, yes, you've disaffiliated from the Republican Party, you've disaffiliated from the Democratic Party. You could have a similar process where you get a follow-up piece of mail saying you've signed the petition for X, Y, and Z candidates. Uh, that would have a number including, hey, if you didn't sign, call this number for potential fraud for somebody uh, you know, uh, processing something online on your behalf. Uh, there's a plenty of ways to do this to bring this into the modern 21st century. The fact that we need to, you know, an inaccurate way of matching signatures is just such a, a, a hard way to do it, especially with a lot of these signatures uh, being captured at the DMV on electronic pads uh, like you do for signing for a credit card. It's, it's an <coughs> inaccurate system. Them, it needs to be brought into the 21st that, century. That's an interesting point. Go go to where the people are who can verify it right off instead of standing in front of Shaw's for hours and hours wondering who's there. What about what about his thoughts? So I, I think it's a great idea, but I don't I don't take away from the fact of having an actual candidate out themselves doing it because I enjoyed it. I loved going to the people's doors. But then again, when you got somebody coming to the door and they're gonna sign the paperwork, they're holding it in their hand, they're trying to sign, they got sweaty hands from working in the yard and everything, and they're just doing a scribble and then you bring it to the town hall and they're going to be like yeah that looks like john smith doing it where they can actually walk in the door and have them come in and sign on a Did table you know there's proper. a sweaty hand exemption in the law you don't know about that i did well, look it up but it print. only extended to the thumb so we had to prove whether or not where they were holding it on their I, hand i think that's the point though i think most voters think that the candidates are out getting the signatures themselves right. i think that's part of the issue is that these candidates who have now ascended to a certain level of of you know of legitimacy in the eyes of the press and the, you know the political zeitgeist are above the the actual nuts and bolts of going out and having to campaign our candidate for uh, governor got at least half the signatures for his ballot access um, along with volunteers and everything like that. I mean, why is it so difficult uh, for Sabina to go out and get 500 signatures herself? I went out and got, you know, over 250 signatures each time I ran for state representative in my district. It's not a hard thing if you go out and knock the doors and are willing to put in the work, especially if you're a full-time candidate. Well, she's I, very busy being lieutenant governor. Well, that is There's well. a lot that goes into that. Yeah. So, and I also think that underscores the point of big business in in kind of around surrounding elections and campaigns and having that ability, if you have that ability to pay for an outside vendor to do this work, right, that, um, that you know, it's become that uh, the, uh, some of the candidates do not have that ability to, for outside vendors, but you can see that there are actually are drawbacks to not getting your own signatures um, and accounting for um, whoever is in your campaign that's doing that, that you're, you're, you have the money to, to pay them to, to uh, fill those, those signatures, those petitions. Let's stay with the campaign itself, Emily. Uh, Sabina Matos, look, I think even Randall Jackvoni said, the new member who, who proposed that they um, take a look at these uh, signatures, he said, I think she's going to, you know, it's not going to show a, a wide difference. We just want to show that we took a look at it. 
in the voters' mind, she's racking up a lot of endorsements. I wonder whether uh, this is going to be in the rearview mirror come primary a day and if she's successful going on to Election Day or whether there's going to be a stain. I don't know. It's a kind of a crystal ball question. As you look at this, right. what do you think? Right. Um, well, I think if we kind of look at even like Bill Bartholomew and his um, he hosted a debate yesterday on his podcast, um, that was uh, you know, a big talking point and criticism of um, Matos's campaign, um, specifically from a lot, a lot of it from uh, Don Carlson. Um, and I mean, it, I think looking at this from a strategic point of view of elections and campaigns, it makes sense. She is the presumed front runner that you were going to um, make these criticisms of her campaign. I don't know how much it's going to stick with the average voter and how much they're paying attention. The insiders are paying attention to this and what's happening. Uh, but we also need to be, I mean, we're all aware that there's low turnout in primaries, right? So maybe it is those who, it tends to be those who are most attentive that are, are going to be actually going out and voting. Uh, Emily alluded to Bill Bartholomew's podcast. I, I A lot of debates coming up. Go to his website. I listened to it yesterday. It took 50 minutes for them to jump ugly on her because they actually, they talked about <laughs> other things. So Ukraine, the economy, abortion, all the things that kind of we kind of want to hear about. And then I think they realized time's running out. We need to go on the signature scandal. Um, so go ahead. Well, I was just going to, uh, for one part, as far as the campaigns are concerned, is I would never take it away from a campaign who had the opportunity to leverage outside help. I mean, that's what the United States is built upon, which as far as, far as capitalism is concerned. However, I do feel that there is absolutely a disconnect with the candidates who don't have the ability to go out. You can run around like I did, like a lot of other people do. Um, you get more of an opportunity to talk with people. Now, moving forward, where uh, Sabina Matos is right now is the amount of free press that she's getting from all of this, the amount of attention that people are getting on it. And some people may say, you know, with the stain on her campaign, I mean, people have realized that you can overlook stains a lot in the politics. Is there no Ohio. such thing as bad press? Just spell my name right. C correct. <laughs> right? Exactly. Because their name's going to be out there. I mean, it's it's the it's the uh, opportunity to get yourself a yard sign out there that can be put out and people keep hearing your name, hearing your name. They go in and they recognize it because that's all it is, is marketing. It's just more of the same thing over and over again. I would never take it. I would never take it away from anybody to hire somebody. But get out there yourself. Don't just rely on your name to, to be up in the forefront. I, I mean, I, I feel really bad for Sabina. I don't think that she's a victim. I think she is a victim of the Board of Elections in action on what they should have done three weeks ago, and she really doesn't deserve this. But to be honest, it's a little bit odd that she seems shocked that people are attacking her on this. And believe me, I, I'm sure that the attacks that she's getting from uh, in the Democratic primary are going to be nothing compared to what happens in the, in the general election against the Republican nominee. Um, and, you know, I, voters in the Democratic primary are going to have to weigh that if they want to have that be a continuing storyline about the legitimacy, whether it is deserved or or not of the Democratic nominee uh, for this special congressional race. Just before we move on, after the primary, since we have you, we'll have you back after the primary. Eventually, whoever is the Republican nominee, what's the strategy in a very, very, very blue district? What do you do? Well, I'll tell you what. It's it's the fact that we have our endorsed candidate, Gary Leonard, who is uh, very, very impressive. Everywhere that I've gone with him so far, anywhere that we've actually had him out, including the Bristol uh, Fourth of, Ju of July par uh, parade and all, um, he comes across 
as the actual right solid candidate. He is somebody. So our focus is going to be focusing on him, focusing on him and getting his name out there as far as where he stands with his policies, his leadership skills, his quality, everything that he's ever done with the U.S. government uh, in the military for the last 30 years, helping He's the only one that truly has leadership skills, which is what Rhode Island has been lacking for a very long, long time. What we need to do is get somebody in place who's actually thinking about the constituents, not thinking about their next step. We need somebody in there like Gary who is actually going to be someone that's going to be focused on policies that are going to be well above politics um, in any way, shape, or form, and he's going to make sure that he performs for not only the United States but for Rhode Island as a whole. Okay. Um, so that's our focus on him. Okay. And we'll Look at that more after primary day. Uh, Tidewater Landing was in a pause because it was having uh, financial issues. The developer could not get the financing that he needed. Construction top stopped on the soccer stadium in Pawtucket. Now it looks like that uh, pub private financing is falling into place, which that will then trigger the public financing. Um, Billy, thoughts on this? I mean, it's a private-public partnership. Uh, they seem to be emphasizing the, the private-public partnership when they're talking about getting taxpayer dollars, but emphasizing the private entity when it comes to disclosing who the investors are. I mean, you know, we, we see a lot of sports washing in sports, you know, live golf. I mean, who are these investors? It could be Saudi Arabia, uh, Russia, Ukraine, Hunter Biden, who knows, uh, that is investing in the, uh, the Tidewater landing. And I'm just kind of saying that tongue-in-cheek, to be honest with you. But uh, the fact that uh, they, they get to a point where they've invested this money, it's privately, uh, a private equity, that's great. Uh, it's eventually, they're gonna kick in the, uh, the bond, which is gonna obligate the state to put in the extra million dollars and activate the TIF district. Um, you know, how do they actually bridge that gap? Uh, you know, I'd be interested to see how they, what the terms of the private equity deal, uh, is it strictly fundraising or is there any type of, you know, debt financing or any type of distressed asset investing that's going on with that, uh, that would cause the deal to, you know, uh, mortgaging the, that, those bond funds in the future, the proceeds for, uh, to bridge that gap with funding right now is really what I'd be concerned with. But, um, you know, without a lot of details, there's really a lot, not a lot to comment on. And, and it's not until the fall they're expected to get everything, uh, their ducks in a row. So uh, we'll see what the economic climate is like in a few months. Emily? I think this looks really good for Amer Rubian and um, because of, we've talked about this before on the show where um, he halted that public funding and I think it was a smart move and it put pressure on um, uh, Johnson to make sure that they had enough private equity before moving forward. Um, but there, I mean, there's still, you can still have criticisms of the the project itself of it's going to um, a sports stadium versus the issues that we see in Pawtucket across the state of education and housing um, but but this um, seems to be still moving forward and maybe this could be a project where um, and I, I know there there's already dis discussions of this could lead to more housing this could lead to some more ec economic opportunities uh, that may help us in the long run um, as a state and, and within Pawtucket. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's obvious that Tidewater has been pretty much a disaster since day one. I mean, there's, there's no getting around that. You have the fortuitous partners, which fortuitous in and of itself is by chance. It's kind of like, oh, they just happen to find money all of a sudden. It just seems ironic that that's in the name with it. For Rhode Islanders' sake, I, I, I hope to God it actually works out. There's not much anybody can do to stop it from happening. So I, I, I do hope that it works out. And again, going back to the capitalism side of things, it's the entire the idea of actually building a stadium where you could actually have some growth, some retail growth. You can actually uh, start doing 
putting money into into housing, which hopefully the money that they actually will be bringing in in the state, they will be using for things such as to help people move into homes and, and things of that sort. Um, whether that'll happen, I'm not exactly sure. Um, I, I'm right there along with Billy. Like, where did the money come from? I mean, who, who got past the hat to kind of throw in some money on this? Can we disclose who these people are? Are you thinking Hunter actually, Biden? I wasn't thinking Hunter Biden. Although, <laughs> Until Billy mentioned <laughs> Well, I, he, he was cleaning off his paintbrushes recently, so yeah. he may be getting ready to kind of get some get some money going into that one. You know, I, I just don't want to see the Rhode Islanders once again being stuck with the bill, being stuck holding the hat uh, on all of this if, if and when this thing actually falls apart. What about apart. soccer? What about, what about soccer? So what about soccer? <laughs> I mean, I hear changing demographic. I, I just don't know that you're going to look and they're going to rely on revenue, right? Uh, the revenue is going to pay those bonds. And I, I don't know. You have younger kids. Are they interested in soccer? Would they go to a soccer game? I, my, my children personally, uh, uh, they we would take them. We probably would have went to Paw Sox before <laughs> we'd go to a, like a soccer game. But um, the. Uh, but I, there are, it's a popular sport, and all of my sons, most of my sons' kids are really excited about soccer. So I could see it um, being an exciting opportunity. Uh, maybe uh, young adults. I mean, I, I see the excitement in, in students at URI of, um, and and they've talked about this this plan in Pawtucket, and um, I think that. It may draw some young adults to stay in the state, so I think that that's a good thing. The the, the stadium revenue isn't going to fund it. The, the the whole point of the TIF bond is that they've created a tax district uh, because the stated and even in the rosiest conditions, the stadium isn't going to generate enough revenue to finance the bond. So they have to take tax revenue from the area around it. And as these uh, delays and the money from the uh, the investments continue to be a struggle to get, and the cost of constructions continue to go up, less and less investment is going to be going on around it. And so it's going to be the existing infrastructure and the existing businesses are just paying their tax dollars towards these private investors, uh, which I don't think is right. And that's been the objection of most people from the beginning on this project. All right. I know we'll be talking about this uh, in the coming months as the uh, shovel again hits the dirt. Uh, let's do this. Let's go to outrageous and or kudos. <laughs> then we have a couple more things to get to. Emily, what do you have this week? Yeah, so I think my outrage is that I, I just saw um, uh, the, the media cover that I think it's been 200 days, over 200 days that beaches have closed in Rhode Island. And I think that's a big concern for Rhode Islanders um, as we see extreme weather um, and um, other other concerns of contamination based on waste uh, surrounding a lot of local communities. Right. Huh? Um, so I think that that is something that uh, politicians need to be paying attention to as we move forward because of the the, the beaches being such an important part of our economy, um, and and it's in the key of you know key point of uh, keeping our our environment clean really? in, for future generations. Well, I, I was about six months ago on the program. My outrage was talking about the ongoing homeless crisis. Uh, the administration seemed to be have caught flat-footed that it gets cold in New England, and, <laughs> and now we're in the middle of the summer, and we're dealing with uh, you know the prolific uh, homeless encampments. Uh, they just cleared one over near the Charlesgate Manor. It's it's something that um, is an ongoing issue. Uh, one of the common threads in the congressional debate is that we're not doing enough as a state. Uh, we have the largest budget in the history of the state. We spend millions of dollars towards these programs, towards nonprofits during 
during the pandemic. Uh, and, you know, there's really no uh, objective goal of where we're trying to get with the homeless crisis, what the uh, what we're trying to do. Um, a lot of the projections they have for affordable housing and everything like that, that's going to be years, you know, two years out before that actually gets into place. And, you know, we need to have some real action on the homeless process to help uh, not only those suffering from homelessness, but the taxpayers who are funding uh, not only the social services that are keeping these people homeless, but also the cleanup afterwards. We're talking about environmental issues. We're sending hazmat crews uh, to clean up after these homeless encampments. Uh, and, you know, that's not fair for the taxpayer as well, too. So uh, we really need to address this again before we get flat footed again when it gets cold again in six more months. Mr. Powers. So all really good points, but I'm bringing it right back to what we first started talking about is the process and the procedures of the election integrity. Um, I think it's outrageous that we have a system in place that is supposed to be for the people, but we're not allowing people uh, to actually get the true answers on what's going on. Like we're pushing this thing way too fast. There should be more accountability. There should be more opportunity for Rhode Islanders to have the ability to partake in what's going on. Um, and also too, to make sure that they have the absolute right people in place. I mean, you hire somebody in to bring somebody to, to go and get your signatures, um, knowingly putting wrong names on there, knowingly doing things illegal, and Rhode Island Rhode Islanders are stuck with, well, that's just the way it gets done in Rhode Island, and we're going to move forward with what we have. I, I just think it's outrageous, and it just does nothing but hurt the constituents of Rhode Island. Okay. In the last couple of minutes, we have Emily. You have a book that came out, co-authored yes. with Maureen Moakley, also yep. a panelist here. So tell us about it and tell people what they can look for in it. Right. So it's the state of Rhode Island, politics and government. It's edited. Um, I edited it along with Maureen Moakley. And we have collaborat uh, collaborators from across the state, scholars um, from a number of universities, colleges here in Rhode Island, um, experts in uh, many different areas. Uh, Maureen Moakley and Elmer Cornwell wrote the book, uh, a, a book. Book, um, 20 years ago, and we thought we needed an update to give general overview of how government works in Rhode Island um, and uh, some of the kind of key differences from 20 years ago to today and when we're looking at the book and what it presents and the information it presents is that, you know, there's a media chapter. There wasn't a media chapter in the original book. Um, uh, there's a, a, a chapter dedicated to voting and elections. Uh, and there's uh, there are policy sections at the end of the book that cover the environment, women in politics, health care policy, um, transportation policy, um, taxes and spending. So, um, so, Did it it, so as these came in, and that was the thought to update, what surprised you or what didn't surprise you? Was it, did you right. expect it to be what it was or did you say, oh, I didn't realize that? Yeah, I mean, I think every chapter provides a fresh perspective fresh take on um, a different aspect of Rhode Island politics and government. So you'll have to get the book and take a look <laughs> at a, it. That's see. a good marketing um, one. But there's, um, I mean, just simply looking at like the voting and elections chapter, which which I wrote was, um, you know, there's, there's these discussions of mail ballot voting. The system of voting has changed within a short period of time. Um, so I think these are, these are important issues that we should be paying attention to and understand how it works in Rhode Island. What are we going to be talking about 20 years from now that hasn't changed? 
probably <laughs> n- uh, nothing uh, nothing different. I we'll, mean, we'll re-rack. We'll all be back. It'll be the elderly, uh, lively panel. And yeah. Do <laughs> sure, you remember I told you guys? <laughs> um, I, I'll tell, they're the only ones that won't be talking like that. That'll just be you and I. You and me. Um, I, I, you know, I can't wait to, to actually take a look at the book. But, you know, with the party that we've had running the state for the last 80 years, I haven't seen much in the way of difference. But it's ironic that you bring up that media is now, no offense, plug your ears, that the media now plays a role in the poli- in the political side of the world, which instead of reporting, there could be a possibility that there's a persuasion instead of reporting. Last so. 30 seconds. I uh, just, uh, again, you, you talked about the, the changes in the voting. That's been the biggest things. And uh, whether or not that's good or bad for the state is yet to be seen. And, you know, I'd be interested to read the book. So I'm looking forward to it. All right. And where can we get it? Um, the Rhode Island Publication Society website, and it's it will be up on Amazon soon. Excellent. That is great. The signed copies? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Emily will be signing afterwards. Folks, that is all the time we have. Billy and Emily and Joe, good to see you again. If you don't catch us Friday at 7 or Sunday at noon, we have all of our shows housed at ripbs.org slash lively. You can catch us on Facebook and wherever you get your uh, favorite podcast. We don't know what's going to happen over the next week, but we will be here to analyze it next week. Come back as the Lively Experiment continues. Have a great weekend. Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazen White, Jr. For over 30 years, a Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS.